0: Connections Cast, brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand.
1: Hello, I'm Angus Rowland, and welcome to TDN AusNZ's Connections Cast, long form conversations with leading thoroughbred industry figures, presented by Newgate, raising top class racehorses. My guest today is one half of an emerging force in the discipline of bloodstock agency. A member of a family that has become breeding royalty in Australia despite being born in England, he trained his share of stars and has worked with titans of industry, but has remained grounded in every endeavour, except perhaps when entering a ruck on the paddock as a younger man. Bill Mitchell, thanks for joining me. You must be fine-tuning in preparation for the first of the majors on the Gold Coast, are you?
0: Yes, we've started looking at horses for the Gold Coast. Um, spent the week in the Hunter last week, um, probably looked at 600 horses. Uh, we've been down the Southern Highlands and down to Twelve Twin Hills in Cootamundra. We're, we're back full-on yearling mode again.
1: What are you seeing on inspections this year? We're in the grip of a La Nina, which is obviously, you know, impacting the Hunter and, and that sort of thing, and border closures have impacted staff. Has that changed the way horses are being shown and how, they, how far along they are in their preps?
0: No, I think the horses are the same. Um, didn't want to show the yearlings, which happens every year. They prefer to show them to you when they're ready because they're only halfway through their preps. But for us, it's it's a good opportunity to get a look at them closer to their natural state um, before they're all done up and pretty up for sale. So it's, it's it's good to get there and have a look at them. And essentially, you have to... Look at as many as you can before the sale because it's you know you get about four days to look at them up there and it's 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 not enough to see everything. We will have to do a bit of catalog work and there'll be horses there that obviously that just don't fit fit in with what we're looking for. So we won't look at every horse on the sales complex by any means. There's just no no point and it's just wastes time, which is very valuable at, uh, at the Magic Millions in particular with such a big number of horses being sold.
1: Do you, do you find the other benefit of seeing them in that slightly more raw state is you can see a little bit of progression as, as well by the time they do hit the sales ground?
0: Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I will look at a lot of yearlings and some will, I will never see again. But there's quite a lot that I say, well, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and I want to look at you again and you will see them change and improve or, or, or not um, when we see them on the 6th or 7th of January.
1: Are there any voodoo lads in there, any that might sneak under people's guards?
0: Well, there's always value in the, in, in a, any sale, but, but particularly Magic Million, it's a huge sale, and you can always find horses that, uh, you know, you have to, everything's about budget. Nobody's got unlimited funds. You're buying for people, you're buying for yourself, you, you know what you're going to spend, what you're prepared to spend, and depending what the horses. We will buy horses for for international clients, for Australian clients. Uh, we'll buy some for ourselves with a view to putting them in a breeze up or racing them. And so you have to you have to have an idea of what they're going to cost, and and you do. And some you know straight away that you know they're going to exceed the budget. And uh, sometimes you still have to do a lot of work on those horses just in case you you're overvaluing them and actually you can buy them for a lot less than you think they're worth
1: have you got a bit of a routine down now with james i mean what is it three years now since you you came and went into business together what's the routine on the road like between the two of you with a
0: yearling sow we probably like to look at nearly all the horses we we both look at them um sometimes you know there it is possible that we can split up um, and sometimes some farms, one or the other of us might do. And even at the sale, we will split up because you just need you just need to to get through the numbers. Um, Thirteen hundred horses with Magic Million, I think it's it's a lot to to get through. And and if we split up, we have an idea. We have the same view of horses. Very rarely do we completely uh, disagree on a horse. You know, we'll give a horse a rating. Straight away, and if the rating's sufficient, we'll go and look at it again. So sometimes I'll only
1: look at his shorts. Uh, that, that scans. I want to get more into horses later, but while we're on, James, I want to talk a little bit more about people. He's your latest partner in crime, but you've been involved in the careers of some real luminaries. Peter Moody and John Thompson both did time with you. Firstly, does that give you pride? And secondly, what have you learned from working with those people in their formative years that has helped you working with James, your son? I think it's probably harder for for James working with
0: his father. You know, you're you're sort of inclined (laughs) to be tougher on your family than anyone else, aren't you? Um, But look, yes, there were quite a few, you know, excellent horse trainers that worked for me over the years. Um, who've gone on to become top class horse trainers. It's, you know, it's it's excellent. I mean, they weren't, you know, they had they had the makings of being horse trainers when they walked into my door, and hopefully I helped fine tune it a little bit. But these guys are very diligent, great horsemen, and, and you know when they come in the stable to work for you, you know full well in the first. Week that you've actually got an A-grade worker who can help you to manage the whole stable. Uh, There's a lot of delegating goes on, and you have to have reliable people around you. And if you've got the likes of, there's two you mentioned, Peter Moody and John Thompson. Well, you can, you can, you don't have too many worries about what's going on at home. It's all in good hands.
1: Yeah. It must be easier, right, right, Bill, these days with a, a two-person operation than it was managing stables in two states and uh, I, I assume fairly big teams of people. I mean, was the human resources part of the training game something that was a challenge or is that something you relished? No, I think it's
0: always a challenge for all trainers and I don't think it's getting any easier either. But um, you find if you've got good staff, they sort of attract good staff and... and um, they're also inclined to weed out the deadwood because uh, everyone's working very hard in a racing stable situation, and and uh, if 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 they're not cutting the mustard, then you find that the, the staff work that up pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. What about at the other end of the scale, Bill? I mean, you worked closely with Kevin Maloney for for close to a decade, and he is a real leader in in a field that is not horse racing. What did you learn from a bloke like him uh, about business, I guess, rather than the horse business?
0: I've learned a lot from Kevin and I'm still closely associated with Kevin and said, you know, um, know, he runs a lot of businesses. His, His work ethic's extraordinary, you know, from early in the morning till late at night, more than I would. Would, would consider getting involved in, but he, he loves it. He doesn't want to do anything else. Uh, Kevin doesn't have you know, apart from possibly horse racing and football, he doesn't you know he doesn't have any other interests. He hates yeah. playing golf. He hate you know he doesn't he doesn't tolerate time wasters and um, and uh, he expects results. And as everyone should, you surround yourself with good people, and and the results think things start to happen a lot easier.
1: Is he, is he hands-on? Is he someone that, you, you know, he would be up at... You'd get a call at 10 o'clock at night just to talk through some detail?
0: Well, I don't think he'd call at 10 o'clock at night unless it was a bit of an emergency. But, yeah, he's on the phone a lot and um, he starts, you know, pretty early in the morning and, and you can expect a call from Kevin almost any time night and day.
1: What was the discussion like around the system Adley acquisition?
0: I actually called in and had a night at Edinburgh Park driving up to, up to that sale that she was sold in and, and I'd, I'd watched her from when she was a yearling and at the end of the day, she actually was not that expensive as time's gone by. Mm. You know, Horses like her would make a lot more now. So Kevin was lucky enough. Um, I don't think there was any planning involved, but the market was a bit flat. When, when Kevin started buying particularly brood mares and yearlings, but he bought, and every expensive brood mare that was purchased, like when I say that, the million-dollar type brood mares have all actually been um, very profitable um, since. And, and then there was a lot of other mares that cost varying amounts of money and some, some have been disappointing and, and, of course, some have been turned into outstanding brood
1: mares. This podcast is brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm, but a leading stallion nursery. In the last few years alone, yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first-season sire Better Than Ready, Vinery Studs' Coolmore Stud Stakes winner Exceedance, Jubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old sort of state, and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and golden slipper winner, Stay Inside. Newgate, raising and consigning top-class future stallions. James and I were talking about the rise of digital uh, earlier today, particularly in the race mare space. How do you think the system Adley thing and, and sales of that nature would go down in 2021?
0: Um, we're seeing, we've seen horses make over a million dollars in the digital option. and I don't even know if people have really seen them, but they are obviously got to get their um, intel from, from somewhere. I think it's still going to be preferable that you see a horse either at the sale, well, they're all in the one spot and, and you can get a lot of them. You can do a lot of work on a catalogue in a quick amount of time, but you, every buyer would prefer to see the horse. And through COVID, not being able to have horses turn up at the horse sales, I'm sure that's been amazing for for those businesses with um, with digital auctions. But at the same time, the, the live auctions going to come back. I don't think digital auctions going to take over going forward, uh, especially for at the top of the market. It's going to always be. It's going to be a great tool to. To move horses around at the bottom of the market, but I don't think it's going to really hang on at the top of the market. I think you'll need people want to see horses, and that having them all at the sale, that Magic Million or Inglises, um or overseas is it's important that you see them, and that you you really can do all your due diligence on a big on an expensive purchase, or something as valuable as a broodmare like Sister Madly. We've been lucky at the Magic Minutes at the Gold Coast that we've been able to turn up at that broodmare sale. We've been quite lucky that we've been able to get to yielding sales and broodmare sales. I think we've only missed one yearling sale, haven't we? That one Easter sale we couldn't attend.
1: Yeah, it's been extraordinary how we've managed to sort of just navigate, find gaps in the, the calendar, if you like, to, to make things happen. Uh, I know one sale that was impacted, it was the New Zealand Ready to Race sale. And I want to talk about that sale because in 2015, you picked up a nice little Hinchinbrook horse who's become a tremendous standard bearer for you. How did the relationship with Kenneth and Merrick Chun start? And tell me the beat the clock story.
0: Merrick is Kenneth and Sylvia's son. And Kenneth and Sylvia first had horses in training with me when I was training at Warwick Farm. And, they were introduced to me by John Moore, who I used to train for. Kenneth has had horses with me since that time. Every year, there was always a horse and came into the stable. Um, and when I stopped training, uh, Kenneth um, asked me to, you know, to buy, to, to start buying his horses, and, and we've mm-hmm. been doing that ever since. Um, so it's been a, it's it's a, it must be nearly a forty year. Certainly a 35 year um, relationship which which um, you know not not always can you buy a good horse, but they're not all going to be good, but certainly we' bought a lot of nice horses for Kenneth along the way and um, and it's great that merrick uh, is who is about the same age as James is really interested, loves the racing. Merrick actually raced beat the clock, uh, they raced them all together, but it was his permit. I found beat the clock. I knew him as a yearling, but Hinchinbrook. When we went to that Magic Minion sale, and at that time of year, um, by the time the classic sale was over, I don't think Hinchinbrook had had a winner. So it wasn't as easy to buy, but he got rolling a bit, you know, toward, as the horses went into the more into the autumn of their two-year-old year. And by the time I went to New Zealand in November, I had a good idea that that horse was going to fit my budget, and and I. I, uh, yeah, I like the horse and, and simple as that, I I bought the horse. Um, uh, he went to Lindhurst, basically lived, lived at Lyndhurst, New Zealand for almost six months, was broken in, was gelded and was, was uh, shipped off to Hong Kong um, uh, where he pretty much won his first race. And he got to his level very quickly and had to start racing at that top level very quickly. So... Mm went on to win three Group Ones and won the International Sprint. You know, he was a top-class racehorse. He'd never raced outside Hong Kong, but, um, yeah, I think he won nearly $10 million, 10 million Australian dollars, which was uh, pretty pretty incredible. And and uh, Kenneth and Merrick sent him back to Living Legend. I haven't seen him since March, but uh, I'll pop in once a year and say hello. It's, it's such a fantastic, uh, it's a fantastic venue, Living Legends, and you know, it, there it is. It's great to see some all those famous horses. But uh, yeah, so that's the beat the clock story. There's not much more to it, really.
1: No, but what a fantastic story it is. I mean, he's a terrific sprinter, and he's probably the standard bearer for uh, your current enterprise. And I'm going to rewind, say, twenty years, and go back to another terrific sprinter that was a standard bearer for another enterprise of yours and general Nadim. Now he was a $20,000 yearling that had a minor laceration after becoming cast in the box, apparently at the sale and the sale fell through. And, and the, the breeder sent, sent him to your Brisbane stable. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I think he was sold um, with the reserve, with the, on APRO that he, that that knee was was be he was taken home after he was sold and and so they kept him and put a few people in an elise situation um, and he came into our stable through the Brisbane stable and yeah he was he, he won his first start actually was on Dar- at uh, Eagle Farm or Durban, I think Eagle Farm on Derby Victorian Derby day if you want to watch a good sprinter and you watch his Lightning Stakes win you You see just how good he was,
1: yeah he was and he went he, on to be a
0: very good stadium
1: he sure did he was electric and and you you talked about the brisbane stable brisbane two year old racing was bloody competitive back in those days, and I think guineas came through the same crop, and they were both racing up in Queensland and ended up in the slipper together and uh it was it was a really solid crop, and I was doing some digging. And I think he was the first Magic Moons two-year-old winner to win a Group One subsequent to that since Snippets, uh, which is is pretty extraordinary. But it did take him until the the autumn of his three-year-old year year to, to break through at the top level. Were you worried that he might not ever do it?
0: Oh, look, he was phenomenal. You know, he was a bit unlucky when he hit those Group Ones early on a couple of times. But he was winning everything he went in almost, and and um I think he was always gonna win a group one. I I mean he won the lightning, he was you know, he got a slaughter in the Oakland plate and um came out and, and and won the new market. Uh he was a fantastic resource. Fantastic resource. I, I don't think you worry at the time. You you always want to win the group ones, but I mean he was winning almost everything he went around in early in his preparations. You know, when he was fresh, he was unbeatable over a short course.
1: 2022 sales season is fast approaching, and if you want integrity you can trust, you need a Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia accredited member. FBAA members are guided by a strict code of ethics, making them accountable in all dealings and giving confidence that you will be represented to the highest possible standard. For contact details of FBAA agents, head to bloodstockagents.com.au and secure peace of mind today. Let's talk about his stallion career. Could you foresee the success he had as a stallion? I mean, Nadim's from a nice family and the general was from the family of Horlicks, but he didn't exactly scream stallion potential, did he, despite his deeds on the track?
0: Well, no, his pedigree certainly didn't properly. I, he got shuffled around a bit at stud, didn't he? I, mm. I know he, he started in Victoria. And then he went to Queensland, back to the owners' farm, and then he went back to Well, By that stage, he was a pretty, you know, he, he got off to a good start as a stallion. He got, you know, he always had the fact, and, and I'm a great believer in, in buying speed. And if, you, if I'm buying a first-season sire, if I'm buying the progeny of a first-season sire at a, at a sale or, or anywhere else, until such time as they're proven, and you know what you're getting, if I'm risking the first season sire progeny, I'm gonna buy the fast, the, the progeny of the fastest first season sire. So, you know, you're looking for pure speed to inject that into his, in, hoping that it's injected into those, those yearlings, those young race horses. And, and, you know, there's been plenty of great stallions that won over more ground, but if I'm buying in that first season bracket, I'm buying, I'm only really want to buy the very fast ones.
1: Yeah, he was a bit like Rory's Jester too, in that he was not just fast. He his his stock were truly precocious in the truest sense of the word. If if you wanted a horse that could potentially get up and going pre Christmas, General Nadim was going to give you as good a chance as any stallion in the last thirty years, right?
0: Yeah, probably, probably very similar to Rory's Jester, who was another stallion I always loved. I mean that that speed. Is uh, once you've got General Nadim in there, it's 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 in there and it's uh, it's going to provide speed um, going forward in the for, for generations.
1: Yeah, and and his daughters seem to be able to inject acceleration into more stout pedigrees as, as well. And I think of Jamaica's out of a. General Nadine Mair, and I mean, how many group ones did she win over a mile and a half? But it was about her turn of foot, wasn't it? That you didn't really see, you don't see so much in those mile and a half horses these days from Australia.
0: Well, I think all over the world now, it's the same with the stadiums. People aren't wanting to breathe the mile and a half horses, even in Europe now. They're not really that. for a horse to get away off to a good start at start. They need to, in the sprint, a miler at least. So, yeah. It's it's you've got to you've got to have speed in there. If you don't have speed, you've got nothing. You've got jumpers.
1: Yeah, uh, another outstanding stallion you've been involved with is the King of Yarram and I am Invincible. Take me through what you saw that day with your brothers when he came out of the box and and you were down to inspect him potentially as a, a stallion prospect. What were your initial thoughts?
0: Look, he's a very good looking. Horse. I mean, he's imposing, he's big, um, got a fantastic masculine look about him, his head, his jaw, He's 17 hands. Um, he had, his feet were not, oh, not perfect. He had kind of flat feet on him and lacked a bit of heel, which, which happens to a lot of horses in racing. Um, but he was a very imposing horse as a racehorse. I guess he was probably six years old at that point too. Um, it was just a matter of Ray Gould wanted him to stand in the Hunter and and, uh, and uh, the, the deal was negotiated um, and it's been really quite extraordinary hasn't it uh, he, he stamps his stock like no other we've just been in the Hunter and when an Iron Invincible comes out you've got this bay with a white one or two white socks and a white star or very not a lot of white on them um, and they just come out and you go, whoa. And it's consistent. He consistently throws you these good-looking, um, athletic, you know, lovely sales horses, as, which have gone on to be fantastic racehorses right from his first crop, where the mares, the standard of mare, the level of mare that he served was, was not great in his first and then particularly second, third. and He was not dealing with a with premium crops of, Australian mares. He was he was you know serving the the, the bottom half of the Broodmare band, and and um, he still threw out Group One horses from from what can only be described as average mares. So he's been a phenomenal phenomenal success.
1: And it was obvious right from the very off, wasn't it? I mean, your, your old man, man's called Major Mitchell. In my family, I'm called Captain Hindsight. And I feel like I'm invincible. In hindsight, I could say, oh, yeah, I always thought he was 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 amazing. Uh, he's certainly an imposing horse, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe that's through the lens of tens of millions of dollars of progeny earnings. You, you, were, you guys were high on the stock right from the off? Oh, look, when you saw the foals, you, you
0: know, they were... Firstly, he was bay dominant, which everyone likes. Mm. So it means that you can put any old colour med, when you're going to get a bay or a brown. It's it's not the be all and end all. A lot of good stallions haven't been as well, but um, certainly it shows you a, a, a genetic um, strength. He he, he he puts his stamp on the on the genes of his progeny, and and um, it's very very dominant and. Uh, he, his first foals, you know, when we saw the foals, we, you know, it was really exciting. And I think he still had to do it the hard way at every level of his career, and he's managed to do that. And now the mayors he serves are quite extraordinary, and uh, he's still throwing outstanding resources out of the good mayors, But uh, he did it the hard way. He didn't get. He didn't get. Uh, he didn't get Four books of fabulous mares his first four years at Stone, that's for sure
1: yeah one horse that uh, you trained that did it the hard way uh, as well um, very different type of horse to Vinny. was a little 15 one hand dark brown son of double century stylish century you inherited this horse from JB Cummings just after he had won a group one race not many improve him after Bart. How were you feeling when the horse walked into the stable?
0: Uh, well, it was interesting because he stayed at my stable when he was a two-year-old with Noel Doyle Um, So I knew the people, the owners, the Monaghan's. I'd I got to meet them there and he went to Bart's from, from Noel Doyle and they weren't happy at, at Bart's probably because it no, um, Dick always wanted the horse to lead and uh, for, for, for from that point of view he seemed to have it right because he did lead in that champion stakes which which he won and then he went down to Caulfield and was ridden quiet again in the Caulfield guineas so that was, Dick just wanted to move on but you must bear in mind that I trained that horse for probably 18 months but he had 7 trainers <laughs> so you know, I was lucky enough to win a few good races with him, and at that time, a lot of money. I mean, as a young, early thirties trainer, to have a horse that won in eighteen months—I think one and a half million dollars—it was—it was—it was seriously uh, uh, the financial side of it was was very important. But at the end of the day, it wasn't an easy task. To, to, train, to train that horse with an owner that was constantly interfering. I tolerated a lot more then than I would have later in my career yeah. because it didn't matter much what you did with him. If you threw a saddle on him on race day and sent him to the front, he'd, he'd run the race of his life. And um, he, he was a most wonderful, gorgeous looking horse. And he was a, just, his nature was extraordinary. He, End up going to start. I don't think he ever really got a chance. There was always there was always other issues in the background going on that uh, I don't know. I don't imagine he would have been a good stand and He probably wasn't, but he didn't get
1: much of a chance. That's for sure. He must have had a hell of a constitution, Bill, because not only did he run a hole in the wind every time you know he, he got the opportunity. But I think he had about 19 starts as a three year old, didn't he? And I know not all of them were for you, but did yeah, you feel yeah. pressure to, to run him?
0: Went to every carnival, that's for sure. And I sent him home, we sent him up to have a spell at Yarraman Park. And it was one of those wet late autumns after he ran in the derby and ran second in Sydney. And he was completely knackered after that race. He was, honestly, he was flat out standing up after the race. He, he tried that hard on a wet track that didn't suit him. And the owner called in to have a look at him a week later and he took him back up to Queensland and put him back into work with an equestrian guy. So then he ran, he missed the, Derm- the Queensland Guineas and he ran in that mile race at Durban. You know, we hadn't had much time off. He'd had no time off virtually since his derby run. And he, he won that uh, Durban Classic, it was called. That's right. He won that and he beat Rough Habit. <laughs> he, he had an interesting career, that horse.
1: He sure did. He sure did. And for context, for those people that you know are are, are a little younger, this horse was among the favourites for the Slipper and among the favourites for the Melbourne Cup in the same calendar year. That will never happen again, will it, Bill? Couldn't imagine. No, I couldn't imagine that it would.
0: Buy better at the twenty twenty two English Classic Yielding Sale. In recent years, English Classic graduates have won races like the Golden Slipper, Melbourne Cup, the Everest, Blue Diamond, Golden Gift, English Millennium, and many other top races. The 2022 English Classic catalog comprises of 810 yearlings by 107 different stallions and from 75 different vendors. Check out the English Classic catalog
1: at english.com.au. All right, well, let's talk about a horse of a different colour and size, a big 16-2 hand rangy son of Zabeel called Dignity Dancer, which you trained for Keith Biggs. Jim Cassidy was quoted at the time as saying this was potentially the best three-year-old he had ridden. How good was Dignity Dancer?
0: He broke the track record. In, in the champion Stakes. he broke the track record at Randwick like over 2,000 metres. And then in the Australian Guineas, which was run over 2,000 for a few years, there and he won it over two thousand. He broke the track record at Flemington. Um, yeah, he was a he was an outstanding gelding. Um, once he got to sort of the right distance and, and the right tempos, he could he could run any time. Jimmy Roady most of the time, that's for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, he was unlucky. And the reason we took him down to Melbourne for that Triple Crown series because in, I'd always believed that you're going to get if you want dry tracks you race in Sydney in the spring and Melbourne in the autumn and if you want wet tracks you race in Melbourne in the spring and Sydney in the autumn and that happens a lot Um, he won the champion stakes and he was a raw sort of horse and he then um, was set for that triple crown in Melbourne because there was a lot of money involved and he won that, he won four races down there and then he came back and and in the race of Guineas, I think he got a wettish track. And then in the Derby, he got a wet track. And he wasn't as effective on a wet track. So, mm-hmm.
1: It should also be mentioned that those, those races in Sydney in, in the autumn of his three-year-old year, he was up against Arena and Sky Heights. I mean, apart from maybe the octagonal year, that was the strongest bunch of three-year-olds that decade, I would say.
0: Well, what a good horse Sky Heights was and Arena, definitely. Um, and interestingly enough, when that horse was put in the breeze up sale, and that's when he first walked into my stable, was that we, we prepped him for the breeze up. And he on the page there were five dams, and there wasn't one letter of any form of black type in those five dams. So he really was kind of freakish, and he had actually got a temp couple of days before the breeze up so he went up in about 14 but at this stage i'd already said to keith you really don't want to sell this horse he, he goes too good yeah and and uh, keith was happy to keep him and put a few friends in and um he won two million dollars a lot of money back then but at the end of his three-year-old career he'd won two million dollars but he was unsound and he hurt himself and you know he didn't didn't train on really but uh, he wasn't the prettiest horse you ever saw and he was an embarrassment in the paddock. He always looked terrible. He had a, his coat was never right. He was the hardest horse to train. He, he would walk into things and uh, he was almost like there was something that wasn't quite right with him, whether it was eyesight or something was unusual about that horse. He was very, very difficult. I was lucky that um, I had a guy, a foreman working for me. who was a very good rider and he rode him all the time and I, I promise you, you didn't want to be putting anyone else on him to, to give him a gallop because you wouldn't
1: have known what would happen. That very season, you had another fairly handy uh, gelding in the stable, a son of Royal Academy, probably arguably the best son of Royal Academy, Kenwood Melody. Tell me a little bit about this horse because he, you only had him for a spring and then he was off to Hong Kong.
0: He was a nice, nice enough yearling. wasn't expensive. Did he cross 40 grand, I think? Um, Royal Academy's first crop. Um and he had a couple of runs as a two-year-old, and he was a was desperately needed gelding. He wasn't very well behaved, he was very bully. Anyway, we gelded him at the end of his two-year-old year, and he came back into the stable, with the nicest, kindest horse. And there was nothing too attractive about him. But when he walked away from me, he had this huge peachy, peachy bum on him, and he was he was he was just. A different horse right from the go got beaten, I think, mean, first up, and then he got the fourteen hundred and he won the Ming Dynasty, the Stan Fox, the Caulfield Guineas. Um the owners were Hong Kong people and they took him to Hong Kong. But uh, that was okay. That, that that's the way it goes. But um boy, oh boy, if the track was wet, he really <laughs> he he was outstanding. And when he went down for that Caulfield Guineas, was pretty dry, I remember, and I was driving out to Caulfield. On he was training at Caulfield, and I was driving out there on race morning, and it hadn't rained in Melbourne for a while. My track was pretty firm, and as I was driving out to Caulfield, it started to rain. And by the time I got to Caulfield, it was hosing down, and <laughs> uh, and uh, I think it made all the difference for him. But uh, yeah, he beat. Lorish lottery, lottery in the uh, in the Guineas, they drew away, and he was one of the. He drew well, and he got a great ride from Shane. He never went round a horse. He got the perfect run, the perfect ride, and he too good. But yeah. he, uh, yeah, he went to Hong Kong. He won his share of races up there. And that's you know, you're training geldings for Hong Kong owners. There's a good chance they're going to go to Hong Kong.
1: It's kind of the kind of the whole whole point, isn't it? You know, that, that's yeah. the end of the day, end of the day. And I tell you what, that spring. I mean, I think it had been about a, a decade since From the Planet won the Epsom and he was, what, a $15,000 horse or something like that from, from the planet and 10 years later you've got Royal Academies running around in, in guineas and you're winning, winning spring champions with Zabils. It's
0: funny, you wait, all, you wait for years to get a good three-year-old or, you know, and, and literally that year, I mean, other than maybe Sky High, so year, they were two, almost the two best... Three-year-olds
1: in the country, really. And they're both geldings, Bill. With your trainer's hat on, that's, you know, it's a no-brainer. If the horse needs gelding to improve its performance, you do it. With your current hat on, the bloodstock consultant slash agent, how firmly would one have to twist your arm to have a potential stallion prospect gelded in order to improve its racetrack performance?
0: I think everyone's a bit more aware of the stallion. You know, I mean, it's the, if you go back into that time, too, stallions were probably getting bought for not, not a lot more than they were getting bought to go to Hong Kong. Um, yeah. But now it's on ballistic, this stallion market. I mean, look, if you're dealing with a horse for numerous reasons, um, obviously the obvious ones is that they're getting a bit heavy, their behaviour is starting to affect their performance and, and you know, they're becoming a risk, risk to themselves. You, you can sour a horse from racing very easily. Um, and so sometimes, you, you know, even with expensive ones, the decision has to be made. If we don't get this horse, we're going to be left with nothing. And when you get that horse, like General Nadiem's, the obvious one, he went to the races as a two-year-old in before Christmas. He never went shinsore. He never had behavioural issues. He was just going to the races every. Two or three weeks, and having a month off for a spell, and then going to the races every two or three weeks. There was no need to geld him, even if he wasn't as good as he was. He wouldn't have needed to geld him. You didn't really know he was a culprit around the stable. So, but some horses, their behaviour can can be affected, and you, you'll lose um, any form of resource. And if he's not going to get a job in the stallion barn if he doesn't perform on the race course, so you might as well.
1: A yeah, exactly. See
0: so if you can't turn them into a, into a racehorse.
1: World champion sprinter Harry Angel. An electric dual group one winner with the precocity to claim the Mill Reef stakes at two. Time form rated 132 more than star stallions exceed and excel and frosted. A son of outcross sire Dark Angel, Europe's answer to I am invincible. With outstanding first-yearlings hitting sales rings this season, and some of Godolphin's best mares in his early books, now is the time to invest in Harry before his offspring take flight. You've been asked this a lot. I'm sorry, Bill. I'm going to add myself to the list of people that have asked you this question. Why quit? Why quit training? Quit is an interesting word. It's like it's
0: not quit. It's just you just move on in different Mm -hmm. times in your life. You don't have to do it forever. You know, I never planned to do it past fifty years old because it's it's almost debilitating work. And yeah, I mean, people think it's all fun and games, and you know, they see you on when you win a race. But there's a, you know, it's a, a gruelling lifestyle. Let me tell you, I, I'd, I'd had it in my mind for a while that I was
1: probably ready to stop training,
0: and uh,
1: I did. I guess the opposite question is valid and appropriate. Why did you choose to train? I think people assume that it's a given when you grow up on a, a horse farm, you're just going to fall into that sort of world. But I, I gather that that wasn't necessarily 100% true for you. you. You came to sort of the training ambition in your late teens. Is that right? Uh,
0: yeah. No, I was 21 and I went I've didn't work and, in England. I, went, I just went travelling to England and... I got offered a job in a racing stable and I just enjoyed working with the racehorses, but I was there for a year and a year and a bit, maybe a year and a half, perhaps. And um, yeah, I came back and I just stayed in stayed in the in the horse, in the horse training side of it. I went and worked for Neville Begg and I went to America for a couple of years. And I was in a time in my life where I was, you know, you you want to see the world and you travel and if I was sort of it was just the way that I did it, I guess. Um, some people in in horse the horse world work on stud farms. I worked in racing stable.
1: I just want to do some quick fire word association because I'm mindful of time and there's a few other horses I want to touch on, but we'll just do it really, really quickly. So I'll read out a name and you give me a sentence on on your thoughts on on that particular horse, if that's all right. Uh, Liverstone Elaine. He
0: was my favourite horse. He was a wonderful racehorse. Tried hard. He put in, he just gave you everything. Everything he had.
1: Electric.
0: A little underrated. She won two Group Ones, Million Dollar Race. Yeah, she was pretty good.
1: Ile de Bourbon.
0: Ile de Bourbon was a champion three-year-old in England that I was fortunate enough to work with. Brilliant horse. Brilliant horse could sprint with the good spreaders on the uh, on the downs in the morning. Um was probably the best three-year-old of his generation, although he didn't win the derby. He was an outstanding racehorse. He didn't run in the derby either.
1: No, he ended up well, he ended up winning the King George, didn't he? As a three-year-old, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh Arogen.
0: Group one winning Rory's Jester Philly. Uh beautiful Philly, stunning, not very big. Um, all quality and class and tried hard. Unlucky to get a wet track in that Doncaster. She was never better and got the run of her, ran the race of her life on a wet track that she couldn't handle. Um, Very sad that she got killed in a race in Adelaide.
1: Mm. Another wonderful filly, bold and determined.
0: Yeah, bold and determined. She won six group ones in a season or maybe nine. I only caught the end of her career when I went to work in America. Uh, she was in the stable that I worked in.
1: Yeah, she
0: so, extraordinary. She was a tough thing, but, uh, well, boy, you didn't want to get in the stable with her if you didn't have to.
1: <laughs> she, she was well named, was she?
0: Yeah. <laughs> she put you out pretty quick.
1: <laughs> uh, Akhenaten.
0: Akhenaten, yeah. Akhenaten. Um Was always just a bit behind the eight ball with him. Um, we finally got him, got him right. He didn't get beaten very far, and I think it was the first Golden Rose. But uh, we finally had him fit and ready to go by the time he got to Brisbane, and yeah, he, he was uh, he was a nice horse. Went to stud
1: unsuccessfully. Last one by the same sire, Snippets Lass.
0: Yeah, well, what a phenomenon she turned out to be. Um, she was tiny. When I say tiny, I'd say she was probably fifteen. 15-1 maybe, just. Um, she got quite sick as a two-year-old and didn't race and ended up winning a couple of stakes races and being a, you know, one of the great broodmares, really.
1: Do you get a little bit of reciprocal pride when you see, you know, the schnitzels and the Brooks success as, as stallions?
0: Yeah. I had a share in Brooks, so that was always good. But mm. I unfortunately, I haven't got a share in Schnitzel. <laughs> but but um, well I guess I I bought the mother and trained the mother, you know. She was she was very fast, filly, really, snippets slashed, and there was always a chance she was gonna, you know, throw a good horse, but you didn't think she'd throw the five times champion side. No one yeah. would have envisaged that.
1: It's interesting that she was she I, I didn't realise quite how small she was, but in a way she probably perfect for a horse like Redut's Choice or Fastnet Rock, who are that little bit on the large side. It's a shame she wasn't around when Vinny came along, right?
0: Yeah, she died in EI in the EI year. She died following Inchelbrook, unfortunately, but she was actually very sick with EI, I think, when 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 she was following Great Big Colt and it basically it was too much for her,
1: she died. All right. Well, I'm mindful of time, so I'm going to wrap up. We'll just do something uh, we do with all of our guests. We're going to do a quick fire, would you rather? Uh, let's kick it off with the Melbourne Cup or the Everest.
0: Well, everyone wants to win the Melbourne Cup, but chances are I'm probably never going to and uh, there's still a chance of winning the Everest.
1: <laughs> Zabil or Daniel? Daniel. Hunter Valley or Mooney Valley?
0: Can't compare.
1: Beer or wine? Wine. Red Rose or Golden Green?
0: No, I'm a Wallaby supporter. I became Australian very soon after we arrived from England. I became an Australian. I think all three of us support Australia. We, England's our second team.
1: We, we got you early enough. Yeah. Uh, top lot or winner's circle?
0: Well, top lot's pretty good nowadays, isn't it? <laughs>
1: Enjoying the podcast? There's so much more to uncover when you subscribe to the TDN OzNZ Daily Edition. Sales reports, industry insights and interviews, race results with actual pedigree insight, even trivia. Go to tdnoznz.com.au and subscribe now. And finally, if I put you in charge, wave my magic wand, put you in charge of the thoroughbred industry in this country, what would you do on day 1? I'd probably
0: move all the horse training out of the city
1: that's really interesting i've had a couple of people say things along similar lines what what's the thinking there bill is it i mean obviously there is a benefit to the animal but is there a benefit to the human as well to be
0: honest how much longer can we just keep these 500 kilo animals locked up in in the city i mean walking across major roads, you've got to bring all the feed. Everything's got to be bought into the city, stored, multiple, multiple handling. And and, uh, what's the upside? They're talking about, you know, when they build these training facilities out of the city, now they go and build a little turning racetrack. Most of the time it's like, can't someone with some foresight and understanding of horses get involved in this? Because clearly, whoever does, most of the time, are clueless. Somebody, somewhere along the line, and I think it's up to racing in New South Wales, racing Victoria and Queensland, I mean, they spend a fortune building stables in the middle of race courses and round race courses in the middle of a city. It's what they spend to build that, I mean, they could build fabulous facilities. I mean, there's not many places. America and here, we're the only ones really training around race courses, and I guess some of the Asian countries.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and the, the Asian countries tend to have, they're, they're limited by the size of the metropolis they're in. Yeah. The horse numbers are limited and, and, yeah. and that sort of thing, which is something we don't seem to have either. Uh, it's, it's interesting insight. And Look, I think you could spend hours unpacking the way we do things because it's just the way it's done. Yeah, uh, exactly. I, I, did, I didn't. know that horses ran faster before the sun was up or trained better before the sun was up. That was that was news to me. Um, uh, and I feel like we're one of the few countries that that stick rigidly to that uh, in our well, it's, it's The other
0: thing, and they wonder why they, you know, they can't get staff and they, and you can't get riders and you can't. Get, young people don't want to work at three three 4 o'clock in the morning. Let alone some stables that started up us too.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's madness. You're not having... It's, it's not normal.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, I must say, Bill, I've really enjoyed this chat. Very, very interesting. And I, it, it doesn't seem like you have any intention of sort of slowing down despite bringing on uh, the, the sun uh, as, a, as a partner. If anything, it seems like it's given you a, a, a new lease to a degree. Would that be fair?
0: Oh, it definitely has. and it's. Um... You know, it's a, it's a win for me to have a partner. We Certainly, there's a lot of areas where James is way in front of me, all the technology bits and pieces. I mean, it's not complicated, I know, but young people are right all over it. Um, and, you know, we can cover more ground and and uh, have more clients and, and really our infrastructure doesn't need to be very big. We, we can work out of the boot of the car with, a, with an iPad and a phone, really. So... You know, we, we're, uh, we're not only bloodstock agents, we're horse traders, we're breeders, we're, you know, we, we've got a lot of stuff going on, mm. enough to keep tips pretty busy.
1: Well, long may that last. Uh, good luck with what remains of your inspections and, and at the sales heading into 2022. Bill Mitchell, thank you. Thank you, guys. And if you want to hear more from the Mitchell family, why don't you check out our episode with Arthur Mitchell or you can hear the insights of other top bloodstock agents in our one-on-ones with Justin Bain and Suman Hedge. We hope you enjoyed this episode of TDN AusNZ's Connections cast, brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and recommend us to friends, please. And of course, subscribe to TDN AusNZ's Daily Edition for the best thoroughbred news and information in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been Angus Rowland. Thanks for listening.